Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my cousin Lara Fraser and she's a music producer and she's just released a song but we spoke about all sorts of things uh, from social media virtue signaling. She has some really interesting takes on it. She's much more embedded in social media than I am and so I, I'm more of the kind of old school slightly skeptical of it approach and she has I think probably a more nuanced take than I on um things like social media virtue signaling and black lives matter in on instagram and things like that so anyway we had that conversation we talked about feminism we talked about all sorts of delightful uh plastic surgery Um, it was great i really enjoy talking to lara i remember her when she was a baby so that's always fun to talk to somebody who you remember when they were a baby i mean when she was a baby i was a small child but even so I remember her being born and it's odd to have somebody be a fully formed grown-up with um, interesting thoughts and opinions and uh, there is a bit of a sound warning content sound warning sound quality warning Uh, this was the last one that I recorded at my father's house so there is construction noise in the background I still think the conversation is worth listening to and it's not huge it's more towards the beginning than the end Um, but if that really troubles you, then uh, skip through to, I think, about 15 minutes in and then it, it goes into the background again. Uh, and there was also a brief interruption. But that all aside, I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Thank you, everybody who's been supporting me on Patreon. Thank you, everyone who's been listening to the new show, The Gargle, which is the weekly spin-off of The Bugle Show, or who's still subscribed to The Last Post, which is coming out monthly. If you are in Melbourne, I will be doing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for the last two weeks of the festival, from the 5th to the 18th of April. Uh, I'll also be at the Sydney Comedy Festival after that. Um, I think that's all I had to plug. As ever, you know, I've got my Audible documentaries up. I've got my, you know, special Savage on Amazon Prime. If you want to find all of that, there's my website or patreon.com slash Alice Fraser as a one-stop shop for everything, including my weekly tea salons. Um, So I will let you get on with listening to this podcast. A big thanks as ever to the magnificent Ben Wren who did his best to make this listenable too and I will talk to you again next week you're having tea with Alice okay so Mm -hmm. uh, who are you and what are you drinking I am your wonderful cousin (laughs) no my name is Lara Fraser and I'm drinking green tea you are drinking green tea and um this is my podcast I have people here and we talk about difficult ideas Mm -hmm. so what have you been wrestling with recently? Oh, my goodness. I should have asked to prep on this. What have I been wrestling with? Mm. See, this is the interesting thing because I wanted you on because mm. I think you often give the impression that you're not wrestling with very much. You have a, like an you have a, an Instagram presence where, you know, everything's very glamorous and, and you come out with your very strong opinions and you have like these causes that you support mm. and you're quite, you know, definite about those causes and you don't show a lot of uncertainty in public because that's not your public persona. Mm. But I know you as a very actually quite a sophisticated thinker. Mm. So I thought I would bring you on and surprise you oh, <laughs> with surprise. the question. Do you know what? It's really interesting that you say that out because like I wouldn't even see myself as 
that persona, I think you just kind of go into automatic no- mode of what you should and shouldn't put out there in terms of businesses. And if you're in media, you know, you put out nice photos and you promote your work and you do all those things. And I guess it projects a certain type of certainty, but most people in media, including myself, are the most uncertain of people. And I think that, you know, we're often always wrestling with a lot. I think for me, um, I had a couple of things that I've been wrestling with recently. The first being um, trying to get back home to Australia to see my family, which I was trying to do over for the course of the year. Um, which was really difficult from London. I did want to come back at the beginning. And then the first thing that happened was um, the hotel quarantine came into place. And I thought, oh, this isn't something that's going to last. Let me push (laughs) my flight back a little bit. This will blow over. I don't want to be two weeks in a hotel quarantine. And then um, it got to about a few months after that. And my sister had had a kid, um, my nephew, Jagger, and it was getting to a few months and I still hadn't met my nephew and this hotel quarantine was still in place. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to bite the bullet because it can, this may very well go on for many years, which is starting to. (laughs) And so I eventually managed to get my flight out here and did the hotel quarantine. In the meantime... I'm very happy that I've got out out to see my family. A lot of people from London that are stuck in lockdown are not very happy about my beach photographs and doing all that (laughs) sort of stuff. So when I say I'm wrestling with something, it's like, okay, can you be happy about certain things when there is this mass pandemic and when people are going through so many struggles? And how do you navigate your social media respectfully when, say, maybe there is something that's good that's happened to you or something like that. So this is one of the interesting things, and I saw this um, when the Black Lives Matter movement was sweeping social media. Yes. And in these kind of media circles that you move in and that I, to a certain extent, move in, I move in, I think there's some Venn diagram overlap in the circles that we move in, Mm -hmm. Um, but the arts and media and all of that, there was this thing of like you shouldn't be talking about anything but this cause, yes. this Black Lives Matter cause. Yeah. This is the moment for talking about this cause and if you've scheduled posts or if you've done anything, then that's a sign of great insensitivity. Mm. And that struck me, and this might be a slightly c- controversial thing to say, mm-hmm. it struck me as <laughs> like why, why now? Mm. But I think that there's a couple of things that we need to look at when saying that. Who was making, who who was saying that, not saying, sorry, who was making the people that were talking about anything else feel bad? Where was that coming from? It usually was um, maybe someone who felt uncomfortable about the cause themselves. I think anyone that was comfortable in where they stood and their stance on it and what they were doing didn't really make other people feel bad about. Yeah, sorry. Um, they're recording. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, no, yeah, so it was this thing of like, when that happened and there was this backlash against people enjoying themselves in public or doing their business mm. even in public, mm. we, where to me that it seemed 
this is going to be hard to me to, to sort mm. of unpack, but like this wasn't particularly bad. Mm. I you know, the whole I world think... has been bad for so long and so many things have been so bad for so long. So why is this the one thing that you're not allowed to continue your life in public? Like why mm. was this? I think that because social media is made up of triggers, right? And I think that we avoid actually getting into conversations about matters and looking at the complexity of things by just using hashtag triggers on um having online outrage, right? Mm. So it mars everything as black and white, right? You know, um, you can't talk about this when this is on. Two things can't be happening at once and all that sort of stuff. I think when it actually came down to it with people that were participating in conversations, as long as it was something that you've addressed and acknowledged and had other things going on at the same time, that generally seemed to be okay in terms of the people that I was speaking to and stuff. You know, I did um, a lot of podcasts with uh, great activists and stuff, and I used my platform more to let other people that were more knowledgeable about it speak. And I could also promote other things as well. And I don't think I, I uh, people generally had a problem with that. I think what a lot of people over in England had a problem with is if people actively ignored the issue and then promoted something that they profited off from that group of people. So for example, when I was speaking to British Olympian Louise Hazel, she said a lot of the sports presenters that um, make their money from interviewing the black athletes weren't saying anything on the topic and then using their platform to profit off a group of people that needed their space and um, needed them to use their media Mm. to give a further platform. And I think that's where the cross issues happen. And that I understand sometimes what people can do then from there is simplify that and said, say, well, you know, this person also didn't speak about it. This person also didn't speak about it and broaden it out to other things. But I think I think the main crux of it was the silence of the people that should have been using their platforms. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. For me, I I was very, um, I was interested in it as somebody who, I guess I I'm, if I if I am an activist, it tends to be on a more um, broader scale. What I tend to do, try to do is cultivate kindness uh, rather than take on a particular cause. And I have my but own like, causes, you, but you then have I give. To, you have to break down like a kindness in general is not kindness without an act of being kind to yeah. a specific thing right yeah. so yeah. so but like i give so i give money to various charities mainly aboriginal lit- literacy and the indigenous uh, legal fund mm-hmm. um in australia and those are my main things and then of course ms and cancer charities because i have a personal connection which again feels sort of mm. selfish but those are not things that i then i guess talk about on my social media mm. i think I think there's a couple of, uh, this is quite complex. And I think the first thing is that no, not everything needs to be on social media. Yes, giving should be something that's done without an expectation back and doesn't often need light, right? When you put something on social media, though, you can get other, uh, encourage others 
to a cause. So you can use it for promotion for that cause. So say if you gave to an MS foundation, you wanted other people to give to it. Your platform is a perfect platform to to it to incite other people to give to the same charity. See, but I think Savage does more to that end without yeah. me telling people. Yeah, I do. mean, but that's that would does it to that end to everyone that has watched Savage. But what if there's people that have just that just glaze at your social media and say, "Oh, okay, cool." Um, that's maybe something I also <laughs> see. Want. I don't think anyone knows me via my social media who doesn't know me via my work. Hmm. That's specific to you, but I'm saying, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people um, can use their social platforms in order to mm-hmm. encourage other people to give in certain yeah, ways I- as well. I'm not against that. I think I think what I feel self-conscious about is social media performativeness. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that I I think is partly just because I don't understand social media very well. Mm. I think I'm of a slightly older generation than you are and to me it feels very detached from life or reality. Yeah, it is. I think that it's a tool and it can be used in many different ways, you know. I think that it can be a lot of people use it for immediate gratification for people to tell them that they've done good when they haven't done good, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think that's the kind of dangerous element to it. And, you know, I think this is when people use... I keep saying triggers, but I want to say trigger words and trigger hashtags or something like that and fake activism. It others themselves from whatever they're rallying against. So Mm. if you're like, oh, hashtag this that aligns you with a cause, then automatically you are with that cause without actually doing anything. You know, that's that's the detachment bit. Well, there's something about it that makes it so easy. By definition, the function of social media is to build a persona. Yeah. And it's very easy to build a persona that is one or two steps nicer or more beautiful or more thoughtful or more glamorous than your real That's a highlight reel of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's very – and I I think maybe I'm just a cynic about people. If there's an easy way to make yourself seem good without being good, I Mm. think most people will take advantage of that. Yeah, of course they will. But is it not better for people at least to want to seem good, to at least understand where the good is? that's such a good point. That's such a good point because I was just thinking about this the other day. I was just thinking about the value of hypocrisy. Like, I don't think we understood how important hypocrisy was until Donald Trump came along. Yeah. And we realised that, like, we always knew politicians were pieces of shit. But to see one (laughs) not even (laughs) pretending to not be. Do you know what I mean? Because at least once you, if someone has a facade or something, at least they know what the propriety yeah, yeah, is. At least it implies that they know they should be better yeah. and then and then other people can look at that better version and aspire to that, that there's something aspirational about, yeah. about that. And I think up until that point I'd always been like, no, people should be who they Authentic, are. Authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've all realised that authenticity isn't all that's cracked up. <laughs> well, yeah, it just depends <laughs> on who you are, isn't yeah. it? Right. <laughs> oh no, it's true though. And but I think that I think that everyone is coming to be aware that, you know, anything on the internet, social media, news, whatever it may be, is going to be a hyper reality. 
Yeah. It's it there there is a certain entertainment value, you know, even though it's supposed to be an immediate reflection on your life, it's edited, you spend time on it, you know, there's nothing that's nothing is put online willy-nilly anymore, yeah. you know, because uh, we understand that it stays forever. Mm. And uh the implications of that. I mean, it's interesting though, there is a huge move towards um voice activated apps. So there's something called Clubhouse mm-hmm. that is um uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it yet. People keep telling me I should get it. So I do these weekly salons for my Patreons. So we all of my Patreon people come on and people are saying that it'd be perfect for that. But So um, I'll chat to you after this about my friend who's doing a revised, not a revised version. They, they've been working on this for many years before Clubhouse, actually. There's a lot... Clubhouse, I like the idea of it, but there's um, a lot of... Uh, cause for concern about the data that is on there and where it's being stored in China and a lot of a lot of speaking of which are you on TikTok? No. Good. No. I'm I uh, Ali also that's a I don't feel like I'm in that generation. <laughs> Everyone's like get TikTok do TikTok dances and stuff I'm like no. I can't. I just can't. I've got too many things to keep up. I've got Instagram. Have you heard Twitter. about the wiggles? I think I think I can leave that to the younger generation. I know. There's always something new. I I think what is interesting about these voice activated apps um and I say apps because I'm actually really excited for my friends one to come out and I think it will be a really really great thing for humanity in general is that it's a move towards focusing on the conversation rather than everything distracting from what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, when you want to communicate with someone, what do you do? You pick up the phone and call, you have a conversation, you don't take a photo of yourself and um, or even a video of yourself, you know, all of those sorts of things add other dimensions to what you're saying, but ultimately distract from yeah. the point, you know, you think that, oh, a video will give me context, but you, with all of this editing abilities and all that sort of a thing, actually it can be used to deter you from what is being said and so many other different layers. So I think I... Th- well, apparently there's this massive upsurge in plastic surgery from Zoom, Zoom dysmorphia, because yeah. people are spending four so or many, five hours yeah. a day staring at themselves yeah. Yeah. and they either have these filters on and then they see this image of themselves that isn't what they see in the mirror mm. and they have a weird disjuncture between mm. how they look to themselves or else they spend the whole time picking apart their flaws. Mm. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, I think that actually I wouldn't even call it Zoom dysmorphia. I would call, the cause of it is because of the filters that are on Instagram and stuff and, you know, people get so used to seeing themselves in a certain way that the then when they're on Zoom and it's an actual just video of yeah. themselves, they're displeased with what they see. But, you know, some of these filters, I was looking through them the other day. There's one called the supermodel filter or something, and it thins your nose out. It gives you cat-like mm-hmm. eyes. It changes your bone structure. And you look into it and you're like, oh, my goodness. You end up looking like a Victoria's Secrets model but then when it goes off, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> or when you move your head a little bit and it goes outside of the filter and, and then you see your face, you're, you're suddenly, you've had this alternate option being put in front of you. See, I find that the way that those, the, the way that those, the kind of the trend of the filters, I don't recognize my face in them. Mm. 
So either I've come to terms with my own face yeah. or or there are ways. So I do a lot of, a lot of, at least once a year I do a photo shoot for my show, yeah. right? And and I have to then go through 400 photographs yeah. oh, of my God, own. There's nothing Then going through the 400 photo edit where your head's like yeah, twitched to the Yeah, you're making this weird thing or one eye is shut or yeah. Uh, and so there's ways in which I think I like to see my Your face. angles, yeah. Uh, and often with what I do, it's functional. So mm. I can now look at my face in terms of what I want to see for a poster. And what I want to see for a poster is usually uh, shoulders up, mm-hmm. um, my body is not in shot usually, and then... Uh, Slight three-quarter angle of the face. Yeah, slight three-quarter <laughs> angle of the face, a direct gaze to the camera, yeah. eyes going straight to the camera, and what I'm trying to communicate is kind of uh, an intensity and strength without, like, being inviting but without being passive. Mm. And, you know, because you, you think about the traditions of art in the Western world and mm. women, the portrayal of women as looking off into the distance and being perceived and being the object. Yeah, the I want to be an active participant in that photograph or the image of me. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily have that much to do with the kind of filters you would see. No. I think, uh, you know, everything is layered, right? I, we're used to understanding that in magazines, where, which is where we used to only see models Mm. um we understood that they were photoshopped and uh, you know that these were i'm not face tuned (laughs) photoshopped yeah yeah yeah, just altered in some way or another i think that we weren't used to seeing our friends and everyday people in anything other than how they really looked Mm. Uh, or even knowing which angles to use and you know get to get these uh, flattering photographs and all that sort of stuff and you know I'm I'm with you when I do a photo shoot you do really have to come to terms with your face it gets very (laughs) real (laughs) you're gonna get every angle and you're gonna get uh, so you know I think when you do a photo shoot shoot and that one photo comes out of the 400 photos, I don't ever look back at the shoot and go, oh, that's what I look like because I know the pain <laughs> that yeah, really yeah, got yeah. there. I think on Instagram, if I if a filter comes on automatically on the thing and I take one photo and I look amazing in the photo, I almost forget the process because it was easy, Yeah, you know? And uh, that to me is a disconcerting thing because then you start to believe that, oh, I actually... I really looked like that then or I was that skinny or this and this and this. And then it makes you constantly fed up with how you are at that moment in time because you're looking back at a past that didn't exist. Yeah. Well, one of the things, and this is sort of a tangent, one of the things apparently that's happening is like lower back injuries among young young women because they're doing so many squats and booty development <laughs> things. That that's a thing because particularly no. for like – Young teenage girls, yeah. you know, if you're a, this is something that young teenage boys often get taught is not don't lift heavy weights until you're finished growing. Yeah. You can lift weights, but you don't want to be doing like powerlifting until you're finished growing because yeah. it will mess up your growth, basically. Yeah. That can happen. Yeah. Um, but girls don't really get taught that, I think, because they're not generally the target of weightlifting Mm. stuff propaganda yeah um but yeah that's that's a thing lower back injuries among like young teenage girls who are trying to get the uh kardashian booty 
Which the know? Kardashians don't even have. I you know. know. <laughs> like I know. There's just this huge surge in um fat injections. So like I mean, there's two things that a lot of people, the new plastic surgery craze is is like one is um actual uh oh god, what a bum implants. <laughs> I've got the word for it. I was like, what the word? Put a bun your butt. Uh, no, bum implants. And the other ones is fat injections. Mm. And so do you remember ages ago, there was a whole big thing where everyone was like, oh, Kim Kardashian has bum implants. And she went and she did an x-ray of her butt <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a talk show. And she was like, see, you can't see any um, bum implants, but it was because it was butt injections of fat. Uh-huh. So, um, and they're actually called ass shots. <laughs> There's the name of them. Um, but that's a huge craze in America. The thing is, is what I've always wanted to know is if you do get bum implant, how do you sit afterwards? Because you must have a few weeks where you're not yeah, in. I so imagine. you just lie, lie down? Yeah, I imagine you'd lie on your front or you'd have like a old-fashioned commode to sit on, <laughs> like a, a chair with a hole in it. Or I, I really don't know. I don't know. I know. This is, I, I'm fascinated by it. Well, yeah, you wouldn't. I, look, I don't know. I, I can't. <laughs> what, you haven't had arse <laughs> implants? <laughs> I haven't. I, uh, I, yeah, I, the, the idea of being able to alter your body is such an appealing one, mm. I think, because... Everyone has insecurities. Everyone has things that they don't like about their bodies and faces. I don't care what anyone says. But I think also because... We, sim- we have this odd thing where we simultaneously identify with our bodies, mm. this is me, mm. and if you're anything like me, I go around a lot of the time thinking I'm a floating brain, like mm. that I don't have a body. Mm. So I have these two things happening in parallel. One is like this is my body, this is me, mm. and the other is I'm just a floating brain, take me on my own terms, and mm. I forget how I look to people or that mm. I forget that I look like something to mm. people, mm. Um, which is something you have to factor in when you're on stage like what impact does this have there are jokes that I can tell when I'm a few kilos heavier that I cannot get away with when I'm a few kilos lighter yeah well actually that happens just in life there's things that you can say when you look a certain way and there's things that you can't and that's because of our visual cues that we give off and what makes people comfortable and uncomfortable yeah so for me it's been this kind of real constant learning curve because I think of myself as Krang this floating brain in a robot (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, and then all of a sudden I'm brought back to earth because I have to think rhetorically speaking when I'm delivering a joke who do who does it look like is saying this who do mm. they who do they think I am mm. and who they think I am is very different in Australia from who they think I am in the UK in the UK it's true isn't it yeah I found that as well it's it, people interpret I mean I guess everyone interprets everyone through their own experiences so it makes sense that culturally as a collective you're going to be understood differently in each country yeah so but like if let you me just oh sorry like no you're you're similar I really want to hear your opinion on this because you are like me. You were born in Australia, brought up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, moved to London, Mm -hmm. uh, have a job there in the media. Um, We we have similar life stories in that way. Mm. Um, You don't have to fuck around with visas because you've got an English mum. Thanks, (laughs) Wanchi. But how do you feel you are interpreted here and how do you feel you're interpreted in the UK? It's funny because not actually a lot of people know that I'm from Australia in London. 
they a lot of them think I'm South African. <laughs> and I think it's because I went to a South African school growing up here that um, a lot, some of my phrases sound weird to them yeah. and they don't quite get it. Because when they think of Australian, a lot of my friends, they think of a really broad Australian accent. Like, g'day, mate. Like, and I don't sound like that. So they get confused about where I'm from. So I think that for me that I'm not understood as their stereotype of an Australian, which is not a great one <laughs> a lot of the time. But, um, yeah, I think that DJing and the jobs that I have over in London are taken very seriously, you mm. know, and I don't think they're taken as seriously here. I think that because it's a lot of a smaller population in general, you know, the arts sector, particularly music, there's a very small scene over here. And um, I think that particularly DJing is seen as kind of like, oh, just like a party thing or something like that, when it's a huge, huge industry over in um, Europe and London and there's a really big skill set behind it, music production, all of that. Yeah, I think it's seen here as a dilettante thing. Yeah. It's a thing you do when you don't need to make money if you just want to be cool and go yeah. to parties. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And I imagine that with an Eastern Suburbs accent <laughs> in Australia, yeah. uh, if, for those of my uh, international listeners, which is actually most of you, um, in Australia, in, in Sydney, uh, in Eastern Suburbs are seen as sort of a cosmopolitan uh, suburb full of well-educated people, a lot of um, a lot of young rich people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because we grew up in the eastern suburbs because our grandparents uh, came here and my our grandfather bought a house here back when no one wanted the property because of the Japanese mini-subs in the harbour. Yeah, well, it was no one wanted waterfront properties then because, you know, they could be bombed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was all Eastern European Jews yeah. back in the day and yeah. now it tends to be up-and-coming, nouveau riche, mm. you know, a lot of, lot of juice shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love my juices, so that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically... Uh, there's this, there's you fit into different demographics because in London in general the art uh, the arts across the board are held in really high regard and I was actually having this conversation we were having this oh no I was having this conversation with my other my other cousin Sarah and it's that the arts are looked down upon here a lot of the time and it's not a real job whilst some of the heart the most highly regarded schools even in um, London, like Trinity and all of that, St. Martin's, are art schools. They're, they're really, really um, taken seriously. Yeah. Well, we have a thing. We have two, two tracks in Australia, in the Australian psychology, that, that tend towards denigrating the arts. The first one is we don't like people who stick their heads out. We don't like people who are up themselves or who oh, are yeah. into themselves. And the arts, almost by necessity, are in part egocentric <laughs> because part of the product you're selling is yourself. Well, yeah, usually the whole product you're, you're selling. Well, you're, you're, you are the vessel for uh, the product that you're selling. Yeah. And the, the, the second thing is um, there's anti-intellectualism. So as you say, in the, in the UK, the arts are seen as like 
prestigious, mm. you know, maybe because they're more connected with the with the history of the arts, you know, things like Shakespeare mm. and and everything yeah. are, you know, a direct line. You can see a direct line there from Shakespeare to <laughs> YouTube, yeah. um, which you don't really, we don't really connect that in the same way here. We don't see it as as worthy of respect. Yeah. Um, if we're doing it, mm. you know, which is odd because we do tend to respect overseas artists. That yeah, it's it's actually it's really really funny. As soon as something comes from Europe or, or, or anywhere overseas, the further away, the better it is. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, there's this kind of oh yeah 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 I know about that yeah. attitude that's uh, looked up to. Whilst if it's arts that is coming from Australia it doesn't it's not worth anything over here yeah it, yeah it was one unless of- it's respected by overseas and so as soon as you're a Nicole Kidman or a Kylie Minogue which are loved overseas then you're a national treasure as well yeah yeah but almost almost reluctantly yeah. we'll, we'll embrace them if somebody else has given them the go-ahead which is such an odd lack of confidence in our own cultural yeah. taste uh it one of the things that I really that really struck me is that in Australia, so it, as a whole, the kind of person that I want to be in the public eye, mm. um, you know, there, there aren't a lot of women who are kind of Stephen Fry's, mm. as it were. There aren't a lot of women in the public sphere who are allowed to be silly and allowed to be intelligent, mm. and nobody thinks that that's weird. Yeah, it's funny because there's actually a very specific. Um, way of viewing that in which it's oh she's pretending to be dumb or silly yeah, or yeah, yeah. it's a scene as well if she's actually smart why isn't she smart all the time yep 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 it's that you can't have a dynamic or she's just pretending to be smart and she's actually an idiot <laughs> yeah <laughs> one way. or the other but I think women across the board really face that as a struggle the uh, the allowance to move between genres personalities or you know kind of navigate a path that you want to navigate because then you're seen as duplicit or you get all these negative. Yeah, you're negative... not seen as multifaceted you're yeah. s- or prismatic. You're seen as contradictory yeah. or Yeah, you false. get all the negative formats of it rather than being like, oh, isn't she, you know, adaptive or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is so interesting. And then the, the other thing that really struck me coming back to Australia was that there are very few famous Australian female comedians mm. I mean, within Australia, not ones who've gone overseas, not like Isla Fisher or Rebel Wilson who've managed to make it overseas. Mm, I mean, in Australia, beloved of the Australian community, Mm. very few Australian comedians who are popular without being caricatures. Yeah, that's true. Which is not to denigrate that, like incredible performers, but like Kath and Kim or... I guess, does Dame Edna count? Yeah. Uh, or Magda Zubansky or yeah. these characters that they play and yeah. that they're loved for are dialed up. Yeah. Uh, grotesques of womanhood. Yeah. They're not Yeah, and then it, it's in, yeah, and it's kind of this idea of laughing at them, you yeah. know, laughing at the character rather than laughing at something where someone's complicit in on the joke kind of thing. Or yeah, having, there's, some, there's some sort yeah. of suspension of disbelief yeah. that we that, that as an audience you can go, well, they're not doing it on purpose, we're laughing at them, rather yeah. than this is an incredibly clever person who's made these yeah. astute observations about yeah. behaviour and done this on purpose. The yeah. idea that you have a, the, the attribution of 
on purposeness <laughs> is fascinating to me. The number of times I've had reviews where people have said it's she you know she seems overwhelmed by all of the ambition of the scope but it somehow comes together. <laughs> Just like, by chance, a plunk. <laughs> you're like that where you like give me the credit and at the same time yeah where people will judge you on your body as though you're doing your body on purpose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're this odd kind of, in one instance they're giving you all the credit and in the other instance they're giving you none of the credit. Yeah. It's, to me, that's interesting. Do you come across that? Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, I, it will it'll always be one or the other, you know, either you have none of the talent but your look and charisma have somehow got you to where you are or the other the or the other being that very talented but you know i didn't like it when she looked here and did this and done that or that, you know what was she wearing or this and this and this you've got to fill many different boxes as a woman performer and i think that you know there's very few women out there that have longevity in in performance spaces. Even if you look at, um, you know, singers, which are probably the most acceptable space for women performers is singing, I'd say, more so than, I mean, I'm just talking about music because that's mainly what I'm in, more so than music production or anything technical or writing or, you know, that sort of stuff. I'm, I imagine, I'm just assuming that music production is a very male-dominated space. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I I know about three other music <laughs> female music producers, and it's funny because, you know, you'll, like, I, I work with a lot of different people, um, in a studio at any given time, and most people do. And um, you walk into the space, and I don't think I've ever walked into a space and had females on the production side unless I've brought them with me ever in any situation. Yeah. So how does that make you feel about feminism? Uh, that's a very broad question. I mean, in terms of sometimes when I'm, when I'm underrepresented in a space, mm. I feel like, I really, all I have to do, and I really have to do this, is a really good job. If I do the best job possible, then I'm doing something for other women. Yeah. Like, I think I think that there still needs, I mean, something that is behind the scenes is <clears throat> difficult to hold space in anyway because people don't really know whether it's, unless you're a named music producer because a lot of music production happens as ghost music production or music or, or you know unnamed music production so i mean i i fall into a space of um being a named producer and dj so i can hold space there but i don't know it's a, it's a really difficult one to quantify it just is and also a lot of women don't want to do it it's very techy you know, <laughs> like it's true, and I, I mean, I that uh, that is um, that is stereotyping, but a lot. It's why do you think that is? Because you sit at a computer for a very very long time in a dark space. You just do. It's often at night, and you know, like in London, some of the studios that like, you have to go to the ends. And you're sitting in a room with everyone smoking weed until like six in the morning and like you've just got to sit there and go through stuff. It's a very difficult, difficult place to hold as a woman. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that. And I, I get that that is 
so I get that that is seen as a kind of a naturally male mm-hmm. space. Yeah. But in reality, when I've seen places like that that have been dominated by women, they're so, it seems so natural. Mm. If you can find a space where, mm. you know, like this is going to sound really trivial, but think about like sleepovers. Mm. Think about girls staying up until 6 o'clock in the morning, mm. doing something, whatever it is. Yeah. There is there is a space for that kind of. Um, oh, there is. I mean, I, I <clears throat> my other Girlfriend Estelle, she's a great music producer. I go to her house all the time and we stay up all night and we do um, music production there. Of course there is and it can be done, but I think... But the, it, because it's been done yeah. by men so often. So this is one of the things that I think is mm. that that we feel like a certain space is naturally inclined towards being male-friendly because mm. it's at 3 o'clock in the morning it, at the yeah. end of a dark alleyway. Mm-hmm. But it's not harder to do at your friend's house. Oh, no, exactly. And it also it's only natural seven. because it's been done like that. You yeah. know, I, th- that's been a created space that can be recreated in whatever format you want it to be recreated. But it's more just I think it's enticing women to want to then it's, – it's not that that's where the start of it is. The start of it is in studying music production. Yeah. You know, so you don't start at the studio. You start in a course or you start, you know, learning from YouTube or however you want to learn. So it's more getting women involved from there. Yeah, yeah. And that's about making it feel um, – I don't want to say safe because that's such an overused thing, but, but making it feel welcoming, making it feel open, making it feel warm. One of the things I always think about – so this is a fairly old-fashioned view, but it's still hanging around um, – is the, you know, men are naturally better at comedy, this evolutionary Mm. biology Mm. thing of like, well, um, it's a competitive thing and men have more testosterone and, Mm. you know, that's a, they want to show off their brains to get mates and, and this kind of evolutionary back, um, (laughs) back writing of, of what, what inclines men towards comedy. And you go, okay, if Mm. we're going to go with like gender stereotypes, women are better at talking, women are better at lying, women are better at being looked at, Mm. women are better at people. Well, it just comes from the, you can make a a fantastic rationale around anything, you know, to to whatever your, whatever, to whatever your end is, you can, uh, it's so hack, that kind of thinking is so hack that, 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 that is, um. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we should we should uh, begin to draw this to a close. Oh. Um, this has been a lot of fun, and you are a powerhouse of a music producer. And you should tell people where they can find your song and where they can find your general stuff. Yeah. So on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at DJ Lara Fraser. That's L A R A F R A S E R. And then on Facebook at official Lara Fraser. And you can find my music on Spotify, Apple, Deezer, all the platforms under DJ Lara Fraser. My latest song is called In This World. And it's a collaboration with an amazing, amazing singer called Shingy from The Noisettes. Excellent. I, I think it's a really good song. I enjoyed it very much. So I highly recommend you go listen to it. Uh, Lara Fraser, thank you for having tea with me. Oh, thank you for having me, Ali.
do you know, or do you not? This dolphin mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doffers, cry up your hands. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.